Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by finding us and listening in. We pray this sermon stirs up your love for Jesus and grows you in your faith. But before we begin, we ask that you not let this podcast, or any podcast for that matter, replace the local church in your life. You need to be a member of a local congregation and under the shepherding of that flock's pastor. So please become part of a local church if you aren't currently. If you'd like more information about our church, please go to www.mountzionchula.org. Enjoy our podcast. Let's pray together. Father, I pray um, as we open your word now that you would fill me with your spirit. Lord, help me um, as I open your word that you would... Um, that you would speak through me, that my words would not be um, what are being delivered, but that it would be your, um, your holy word um, read by me, and, and, and that, Lord, you would speak through me as I um, explain it and as I apply it. Father, help me not um, take any credit for anything that I do here today, but that you would be magnified among us, and that Christ would be our only treasure and our only hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2. As I've already said this morning, um, today is a very important day for the Christian faith. It spooked a lot of people when it happened caused fear and trembling across the land. It brought up from the dead many things. It caused ghosts of the past to be heard by many. October 31st is Reformation Day. In 1517, the Roman Catholic Church ruled the land. They ruled the land. Everybody in the area, everybody within the Roman, within the Roman um, world was expected to attend church whether they were a believer or not. Because in that time, you were baptized as a baby, and so you were considered in the church from the moment you were born. It was part of your civic duties that you attend church. And if you neglected for long, you could be excommunicated from the church. And in that worldview, that's essentially cutting you off from eternal life. There were two prevailing doctrines that existed at that time. One was the idea of indulgences. Indulgences, that is, if you had sinned, you would... Come confess your sins to a priest, and he would prescribe how much you had to pay, how much money you had to, to pay to get forgiveness of your sins. That's an indulgence. How do you think the incredibly gorgeous Catholic cathedrals in Europe were built? On the money of people's indulgences. And then you had the idea of purgatory. Purgatory. When you died, you didn't go to heaven. You went to purgatory, and you had to burn off the rest of your sins while you were there, and your loved ones on earth could pay money or pray to get you out of purgatory quicker. There was a phrase at the time that said, as, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That is, as soon as money is thrown into the offering plate, a, a soul jumps out of heaven, or jumps out of purgatory into heaven. At the same time, God had been doing work among a monk named Martin Luther. Luther was reading scripture one day, and he read Romans 1.17. He read Romans 1.17. I, I should have written that down in my notes. Um, Romans 1.17. 
It says, for in, the right, in this, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther reads that and realizes salvation is not by indulgence. It's, it, it is faith that saves you, not how much money you pay the, the pope or the priest. He is born again in that moment through the spirit of God, through faith. He begins to study scripture and realizes that the teaching of the Catholic Church of that day is not in line particularly in the issue of salvation. It is not of works, it is of grace. So Luther writes those 95 theses, and he nails them to the door in Wittenberg, Germany, on the morning of October 31st, 1517. They're on the door this morning. If you want to take a second as you leave, read a couple of them. Um, this begins what is known as the Protestant Reformation. At that time, there was only the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. This begins the Protestant movement. Out of the Protestants, you get Baptists, you get Methodists, you get Presbyterians, and many others. We are Protestants. Luther was very concerned that Scripture, and not tradition, is our guide in church and life. Church is not based on what the Pope says. It, it, the, the people with the money don't get to say how we do church. We don't, do, we don't continue to do things simply because we've always done them that way if it's something that is wrong. The Bible is our guide for how we do church. That was what Luther recovered. And Luther was concerned that we get salvation right, and the Catholic Church had gotten it majorly wrong. What was at the heart of the Reformation? What makes October 31st, 1517 so important? Well, first, it was the emphasis on Scripture alone, but secondly, the emphasis on salvation being by grace through faith, not being of works. And we're going to focus on that second emphasis today. So Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What do Albert Einstein, George Washington, Martin Luther King Jr., John Lennon, Karl Marx, Saddam Hussein, Robin Williams, Princess Diana, Dale Earnhardt and Dr. Seuss all have in common. They're all dead. That's what they have in common. They're all in a box buried under six feet of dirt, unless they were cremated. I don't know if one, of the, one or two of them was cremated, but the same idea. They're doing nothing in that box. They're doing nothing. They are no longer producing anything. They are no longer contributing to society. They are no longer communicating. They are laying lifeless inside a box. That's the spiritual state of anyone who is not saved. That is, that is a physical picture of the spiritual reality of someone who isn't saved. The scripture says there in verse 1, you were dead. 
You were dead in your trespasses. Before you came into a saving relationship with Jesus, you were dead. Dead. You weren't just bad. You weren't just distracted. You weren't just lost. You weren't, as we often make it seem, just a good kid that needed to go through the ritual of coming up front in church and so they, they could go to heaven one day. No, you were dead. Spiritually speaking, you were lifeless inside a box unable to contribute anything to your salvation, unable to do anything to make yourself right with God. If you're here today and you're not saved, that is, you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus. You're dead. You're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. And one day, your physical state will join in with your spiritual state, and you will suffer death eternally. Hell is called the second death in Revelation 21. You feel like you're dying, but it never ends. It never ends. What's it like to be dead? Well, verses 1 through 3 talk about that. It's a way in which we walk, see verse 2, we once walked in that way, that though it is spiritually dead, it greatly affects the way you physically live. It is life that walks in the pursuit of self rather than the pursuit of God. It is life that thinks nothing of God. It is life that can't see beyond this world. It is life more concerned about accolades and achievement on this earth than treasure in heaven. It says you're following the course of this world. It follows the thoughts and the ways of this world. That's what it does. It says things like, as long as both of you are consenting, it's okay to have sex with anybody. It says you need to make sure you're giving yourself self-love. It says pursue your best life. It doesn't matter who you have to shove out of the way to get there. It says it's okay to neglect your spouse to, for your kids. You've only got your kids so long. You can, you can pour into your spouse later. It says you don't have the right to tell anybody how to live their lives. It says your family is more important than your faith. And all of that sounds completely logical because those in the world who don't know Jesus are dead. Because ultimately, the world is under the sway of the devil. That's what it says there. Following the prince of the power of the air. Following the devil. He's called the prince of the power of the air. What does that mean? Well, if I say there's excitement in the air, what does that mean? It means that all around us, people are excited, right? It's the same idea. He is exercising his power everywhere. He's, he's, he's exercising his power everywhere. All of humanity is under his sway. Before you knew Jesus, you were demonically oppressed. Now, you probably didn't experience anything like the exorcism of Emily Rose, but the devil's grip was upon you. Colossians 1 says that before we're saved, we're in the domain of darkness, and when God saves us, he transfers us to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's a transference that happened. The devil has sway over the whole world. The whole world has a worldview it puts forth, and we're part of the world, so we listen to it. That's what it means to be spiritually dead. We were all dead. Notice who all it says, we all once walked in this. Verse 3, we all once lived like this, all of us. You were or are still part of this. Do you get that? This isn't just the people that you see as the bad guys. That There are no good people in the world according to Scripture. Before God, everybody is wicked. There are only dead people. There are no good or bad people. There are alive and dead people. You may be more moral than other people, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. 
If you knew the life story of every person in our church cemetery, you would find that some of them had a shady past and others didn't. But they're both dead. There are moral dead people and there are immoral dead people. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. You're born spiritually dead. How much good works do you have to do to not be dead? Well, ask the people in, in, the, in, the, in a cemetery. How much work can they do to get out of the casket? None. Now, preacher, I hear you, but I ain't as bad as those thugs on the news that got arrested. I ain't as bad as those Democrats in Washington. I ain't as bad as Nancy Pelosi. I ain't as bad as, as the Taliban in Afghanistan. Again, there are moral dead people and immoral dead people. Neither of them are more dead than the other. They're dead. Let's see why you're clumped in with these people. Verse 3. We all once walked there, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It says, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's the criteria. Not some list of evil atrocities, simply that. Living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So let me ask you just a few things. You ever lied to anyone? That's a spiritual, that, that's, that, that's done out of a desire to conceal truth. That's living in the passions of the flesh. You ever gossiped? You ever shared a prayer request as gossip? That's done out of a sinful desire to know information and spread it around. It's following the passions of the flesh. Do you hate anyone? Like, do you hate anybody on this earth? Well, that's a sinful desire to judge and destroy that person. That's the reality. Have you ever lusted? Well, that's a sinful desire to take a human being and use them for your own pleasure instead of intimately knowing their soul. Time would, spell to speak of, time would fail to speak of gluttony and how we eat way more than we need to suit our physical sinful passions. We follow the passions of our flesh. We're all in the same boat here. It doesn't matter that you see yourself morally better than Nancy Pelosi. It doesn't. On judgment day, God will not hold up Nancy Pelosi and say, you had to beat this and you get in. No, he will hold up his own holiness and he'll say, you got to beat this or you don't get in. And none of us beat it. None of us beat it. So we are children of wrath, it says, destined for hell. Hell being the eternal pouring out of God's wrath. This is the destiny of anyone who is not saved. And this is your destiny and my destiny when we were born. Children of wrath. Then comes perhaps the greatest two words in the Bible. Verse 4. But God. But God. God, two greatest words in the Bible right there, but God, being rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. Nowhere else in the Bible is God described as being rich in anything. There are portions where it says he has riches, but it does not describe him as being rich in anything except mercy. He is rich in mercy. Mercy is not just something God has. Mercy is something God is. Uh, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God shows mercy, he's acting out of who he is. It is his nature to show mercy. Some of you think his nature is anger and frustration. It's not. It's mercy. His, his, his very nature is mercy. He, he gives mercy. Mercy is he does not give us what we deserve. We deserve a lot, and he does not give those things to us. 
We already, saw, we already saw in this passage, you deserve wrath and I deserve wrath. We deserve wrath for all eternity. He gives us mercy. That song we just sang in Christ Alone, maybe, maybe my favorite hymn in, all of, in, all, in, in every hymn ever written. Several years ago, a particular denomination out there asked the writers of those hymns, of that hymn, because they're still alive, um, if they could include that song in their hymnal, but change the second lyric, the second verse, from in Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, um, this gift of love, this righteousness. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, where's the wrath part of that verse? Let me, hymnal, 506. They wanted to change the lyric from this Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's what the hymn says. They wanted to change that to, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Wanted to take wrath out of it because we don't want a God who is wrathful. If God is not wrathful, that means evil will never be judged. That means Hitler gets off for gassing millions of Jews because God's not wrathful. If you want to see how wrathful God is, look at the cross and see the Son of God bleeding out every drop of his blood and being forsaken by God in our place. That's how wrathful God is towards sin. That is his wrath on full display. Mercy is that we don't get that wrath. We, if we have faith in the sacrifice of Christ, we don't get that wrath. He bore that wrath for us in his mercy. It says because, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. God did this because he loves us. Why on earth? Have you seen some of us humans on this earth? Pathetic little nimwits. Little pagans, insane morons who think it's their way or the highway. And some of that's just about me when I said that. And God loves them, loves us. God loves me despite who I am. Despite that I was dead in my sins, despite that I followed the course of this world, despite that I was influenced by the devil, God loves me and God loves you. He gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for me. I love y'all, but I'd never sacrifice my son for you. So I don't love you as much as God loves you. In his mercy, in his love, in his grace, he has come to us while we were spiritually dead. While we were spiritually dead. He made us alive, verse 5 says. Even when we were dead, he made us alive. He made us alive. We were dead. We were at the lowest state we could possibly be. We were dead following this world and the devil. And even then, God did the one thing we needed. He raised us to life. The theologian Dane Ortland puts it like this. Christ was not sent to mend wounded people or to wake sleepy people, or to uh, advise confused people, or to inspire bored people, or to spur on lazy people, or to educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. That's what he was sent for. If your salvation experience does not look like a resurrection from the dead, like a dead person being raised to life, I'd, I'd question whether or not it happened. If you're still dead as a doornail spiritually, something's wrong. Examine your heart this morning. Is your soul dead? You know yourself. Are you dead as a doornail spiritually? Because according to scripture, when you got saved, you were spiritually raised to life. You came back to life. 
God gave dead people the one thing they needed. He gave them life. He took spiritually dead people and he breathed life into them. If you're saved, that's what happened to you. You were buried in the grave and Jesus said, as he did to Lazarus, come out. And you walked out alive. Nothing you could have done on your own brought you out of the grave. It took the sovereign voice of Jesus calling out, come out. And you came out. He made you spiritually alive. One day your physical state will catch up with your spiritual state. You will die on this earth, but your body will be raised from the grave when Jesus comes and you will live forever. By grace, you have been saved. Verse, verse 5, by grace, you have been saved. He not only shows his mercy to you, that is, he doesn't give you what you deserve. He shows his grace to you. He gives you what you do not deserve. He gives you what you do not deserve. It says in verse 6, he raised you up and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. He takes you from the lowest place you could ever possibly be and places you at the highest place you could ever possibly be. You go from being dead to being seated at the right hand of God with Christ. Like that, that's what he does. You become a co-heir with Christ. The kingdom of God that is coming is your inheritance. All the glories God has, uh, the, all the glories of God are willed to you to enjoy forever and ever as your inheritance. You will get to reign forever and ever with Christ in the new Jerusalem. This is grace. God doesn't just give you, God doesn't just not give you his wrath. He gives you an overflow of all the spiritual blessings of heaven. He is, he not only wants to save you, he wants to shower you with a waterfall of his grace forever. That's what verse 7 says. For in the coming ages, he's going to show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward you in Christ. He will show his grace to you forever. This is what eternity will be. In the coming ages after Jesus returns, God will spend all of eternity showing all of his grace to you. Immeasurable, it says. That is, you can't quantify it. You can't measure it in a measuring cup. You can't measure it on a scale. You can't measure it with a, with a yardstick. You can't do it. It's immeasurable. There is so much of it that you couldn't even classify it if you tried. This is what's waiting for you in heaven. We have such a small view of heaven. Like our view of heaven is simply that we will have no more back pain and get to see our loved ones. Those things will happen. Those things will be wonderful. But well beyond that, the beautiful God who made you, will spend all eternity lavishing his wonderful grace upon you. You will get all of eternity to enjoy God and enjoy Jesus and fellow, with the fellowship and love that comes from knowing them right beside your loved ones with no pain. That's eternity. What a joy that will be. Is that not good news? Is this not exciting news? Is this not news worth smiling over, worth shouting for joy over? I promise you this is more wonderful news than the fact that Georgia won yesterday. Does that stir up more excitement than this? He, he takes dead sinners, he makes them alive, and he gives them an eternity. This is what your salvation is all about. Enjoying God forever. Forever and ever and ever. You didn't deserve that. You deserve nothing but his wrath poured on you forever. This is the good news that Martin Luther recovered at the Reformation. This is it. Had he not recovered it, you'd be paying me money for forgiveness of your sins today. God help us all if that were the case. No, that's not what happens. So you can see why the theology of the Catholic Church was, was insultingly evil. 
It was taking this glorious news of the, that exists in the gospel of Jesus and trying to sell it for money. The God of the universe is so rich in mercy, he wants to pour grace out on you freely forever. The Pope and the priest were charging people for it, and they couldn't even give it. So you're losing money, and you're not getting forgiveness for your sins. It was telling people, even after you die, you're not with God until you burn off all the remaining sin that you have in purgatory. So Luther took a stand, and he called out that view. He says, it, it's not of works, it's of grace, which is what 8 through 10 is all about. It is by grace you've been saved. That is, God poured it out on you completely. It's not something you can earn. It's not your own doing. The theologian Jonathan Edwards said, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. You don't contribute your own works. God doesn't meet you halfway. He saves you fully. It's not of works. You don't earn salvation by how much you attend church. You don't earn salvation because you have correct views about abortion, marriage, and the Second Amendment. You don't earn salvation by how much you help people or how much money you give. You don't earn salvation by praying and reading a devotional book. You don't earn salvation by having manners, please and thank you. You don't earn salvation by being a good American citizen. None of that matters because, remember, you're born spiritually dead. You can do nothing to make yourself alive. Nothing. But a lot of people believe it is of works, don't they? That they can make themselves alive through works. You hear it a lot in country music songs. I, I like country music. I, I like that period from about 1990 to about 2005. Everything after and everything before I'm not a huge fan of. But, but, but about 1990 to 2005. But there's a lot of country music songs about salvation being of works, isn't there? Where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, a lot of back porch sitting. Where I come from, trying to make a living, working hard to get to heaven. Where I come from, we don't work hard to get to heaven. We just don't. I remember when I was a kid and my dad would hear that song on the radio. He'd look at me and say, Aaron, we don't work hard to get to heaven. We can't work our way there. Or you think of that Brooks and Dunn song, Believe, singing about a man that he knew when he was a kid named Old Man Wrigley. He says, if there was ever anybody who deserved a ticket to the other side, it'd be that sweet old man. No. No, the sweetest old man you know, the sweetest old woman you know, is under wrath and on their way to hell forever, and they deserve every bit of it. Or you think of that silly song, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven by Kenny Chesney. Preacher, maybe you didn't see me throw an extra 20 in the plate. There's one for everything I did last night and one to get me through today. How much of indulgence and purgatory theology still exists in us? God help us. How insulting it is to the cross of Christ to think that we can work our way to heaven by putting an extra 20 in the offering plate. It's not of works. You could not, you can never do enough to earn it if it were of works. Let's just pretend that, that that's how it works. That's not how it works, but let's pretend that is. Let's pretend there's a scale. Good deeds and bad deeds. You've got you to gotta have more good deeds than bad deeds. You've got to balance it out and then have more good deeds. So let's just pretend you sin 10 times a day. That's being generous with you and I. We sin way more than that. Let's just say we sin 10 times a day, and we do that every day of our life. Well, that's 3,650 sins a year. If you're 50 years old, you've sinned 182,500 times in your life. So you've got to do that many good deeds to balance out but don't forget, you've got 10 more adding every single day, and you've still got a lot to make up for. Good luck. Good luck. 
the God of grace just speaks honest to you, and he says, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't. Even if you were able to do enough good works to balance it out, that's not how it works. You're not bad. You're dead. You don't just need some good works. You need a resurrection. And God says, I will freely give you that at the cost of my son's life. He does this, verse 9, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Nobody can boast about this. Only God gets the glory for your salvation. If it were of works, we could strut ourselves around this world saying, look how holy I am. The Pharisees did that, and it was a stench more foul than feces in the nostril of God. God gets the glory alone. The theology Martin Luther would begin on October 31st, 1517, would eventually, I told you, be summed up in those five solas. Sola being the Latin word for alone, scripture alone. Not tradition, not the Pope. According to scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, not by works, by grace. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not through our bloodline or our nationality or our church or our baptism. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by indulgences, not by prayers of our family members. All of this is done to the glory of God alone. God saved us that we might be the, to the praise of his glorious grace for all eternity, that his son would be magnified forever because of us. You know, I send a lot of photos and videos of, of Haddon to my parents and grandparents all the time. I send them something. I do this because I want to show my son off. Look at all the things he's doing. I want to show them. God wants to do that with his son, but so much more. He wants to show the glory of his son to all people, and he does that through saving sinners that they would praise his name forever. And God saves you, not of works, but to do works through you, verse 10. He wants to do works through you. So I guess we don't have to do anything for God, right? I guess we can just kick back Wait for Jesus to return and take us to the promised land. No. How do you know if a person is living or dead, spiritually speaking? Well, take that back. How do you know if a person's living or dead? Well, if a person's walking around, breathing, talking, doing stuff, they're living. If they're in a casket, they're dead. When you go to a funeral, you've got no problem figuring out who the, who the deceased is. How do you know? If a person is spiritually living or spiritually dead, verse 10, good works, good works. It's not what saves them, but it's the evidence that they're spiritually alive. They do works, they do good works that God has created for them to do. This is not just holding the door open for people, though it doesn't not include that. But any pagan can hold the door open for somebody. No, these are the works that God gives his people to do. He says he prepared these works beforehand that we should walk in them. It's things like making disciples. It's things like building the church. It's things like reaching the lost, teaching the faith to the next generation, helping other people make war against the sins they're struggling with, um, confronting fellow believers when they are in sin, walking alongside married couples and urging them to stay together when they're on the brink of divorce, uh, pushing back the darkness in the world, working to be the light of the world in the world against the darkness. God wants to do these things through you. He wants to do these things through you. This is not works that you do so you can strut around and show everyone how holy you are. No, these are things God does through you. He says we walk in them. Compare that to verse 2. We once walked in those things. Now we walk in these things. So... 
Examine yourself. Examine yourself. Are there Christian good works in your life? Again, not those things that pagans could do. Are there good works in your life that God is doing through you that are, that are explicitly Christian good works? According to this passage, God will do good works through your life if you're raised with Christ. He will do it. If you're dead spiritually, you will do what spiritually dead people do. Walk in the passions of your flesh. The passions of your flesh are not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. No, the passions of the flesh are simply living for your own pleasure rather than for the pleasure of God. You can do that every day and look like a nice little put-together American family. God has given us the ability to discern whether someone is spiritually dead or alive. The same that if Jim Albritton took me into the back room where they do the embalming, I would know who the corpse is in the room. If God is doing no works through you, but you're completely living in the passions of your flesh, you should seriously consider whether or not you're spiritually alive. Or perhaps you don't have to wonder. You know you're not. Friends, you're destined for wrath, if that's you. And there are no good works you could do to relieve yourself of that. You must repent of your sins and believe in this good news. Turn from your sins. Place your trust in the death of Christ on your behalf. When he died, he died in your place. He was forsaken by God so you wouldn't have to be. When that happens, you'll be raised with Christ by God. You will be saved by him by his grace. Guaranteed eternal life where he will pour out his grace on you forever and no more wrath. And he will begin to do good works through you here on this earth. You know, October 31st is a significant day for me in more ways than one. It's not just the day Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door. It's not just Halloween. It was on October 31st, 2007, that God invaded my story and gave me a spiritual resurrection. And I repented of my sins and trusted Christ by faith. October 31st was the day I came to Jesus. Before that day, I was dead in my sin. I was following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the devil. But God. But God. How about you join me if you aren't saved? Let's share a spiritual birthday. How about letting today be the day that your story is marked by those words? But God. Let's pray. Lord, what wonderful news. What wonderful two words in the Bible, but God. Lord, we were on the way to hell. That was our destiny. But God, he came and plucked us off and saved us. Lord, we were converted. We became spiritually alive. Now you do good works through us and you promise us that one day you will pour out your grace on us forever and ever. We will never grow tired of it. We will never get enough of it. We will enjoy God forever. What wonderful glory, what wonderful joy, what wonderful good news we have. Oh God, awaken our hearts if, if we're not excited about this. Change our stagnant faith and give us joy. I thank you for this good news, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now is your time.